Hello, this is the Eater Upsell, a podcast from Eater.com, obviously. We are brought to you by the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Janine. I am a producer here at Eater. Today, I am joined in the studio by Hillary Dixler Canavan. Hello, Hillary. Hi. Got it all. Yeah, you got my whole name. Good job. <laughs> so Hillary has been the point person for a crazy kind of news cycle for us revolving around the celebrity chef, celebrity TV host, Andrew Zimmern. What do we need to know about this Andrew Zimmern Lucky Cricket restaurant? Let's start with who Andrew Zimmern is. Let's the do real it. TLDR, Andrew Zimmern, is uh, famous for hosting the television show Bizarre Foods, and it had a few different series. Um, so in those shows, he sort of traveled the world, tasted food, showed food to audiences. Mm-hmm. Lucky Cricket is his first sit-down restaurant. Um, He does also have a business doing, like, stadium concessions. But Lucky Cricket's a sit-down restaurant focused on Chinese cuisine that he is hoping to grow into a chain throughout the Midwest. His take on P.F. Chang's. Yeah. That's basically how he has explained it. And what kind of food are they doing? Pan-Chinese. Right. Um, It's sort of not regionally specific. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've got dumplings, they have noodles, they have roast duck, and they have homage dishes to famous Chinese restaurants as well. Um, And some fun fusion. There's like (laughs) a Hong Kong style bubble waffle topped with fried chicken. I didn't know that this restaurant was coming. Like I, you know, I work here obviously, and I did not know that Andrew Zimmern was opening a Chinese restaurant in Minnesota. And maybe I probably would have heard about it last week, but something happened he 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 had a he had a not the best interview and and it became this big story. Can you tell us about the Fast Company interview? Yeah. So the day after the restaurant opened, and part of why you might not have heard of it is that it opened in a mall in suburban Minneapolis. It wasn't like a splashy big city opening. The day after the restaurant opened, Fast Company dropped a long form video interview, in the course of which Zimmern said some really problematic things. He said his goal was to bring real Chinese food to the Midwest, and what he actually said was that he believes he's saving the souls of all the people from having to dine at all these horseshit restaurants masquerading as Chinese food. And what does he mean by horseshit restaurants? He's referring—he's probably referring to Panda Express. In the backpedaling he did after this interview went live, he says he was referring to Panda Express and P.F. Chang's. But what he did by making a blanket statement like that was, like, erasing the immigrant communities that are present in the Midwest and sort of assuming that, like, Chinese-American restaurants that adapted to, like, the American palate to survive are horseshit. Mm-hmm. Not great. And what did he say about the founder of P.F. Chang's? So the other thing he did in the interview was elevate himself into the position of like being the person capable of opening middle America's eyes mm-hmm. to this better cuisine. And what he said was, I mean, was P.F. Chang's not a ripoff because Cecilia Chang's kid owned it? Because despite how he looks on the outside, he's a rich American kid on the inside, Right. And in that one statement, basically erased Philip Chang's racial identity. And whatever he's been through. And whatever he's been through and basically, like, called his, like, cultural purity into question to, like, give his own work a pass, which I found deeply troubling. Yeah. Those two moments in the interview are why I felt like I needed to 
think more and write about what was happening at Lucky Cricket. We should probably say here that Andrew Zimmern was originally um, planning on appearing on today's episode, but then couldn't make it. So we're moving ahead. Up first, we are joined by Serena Dye, who is the editor of Eater New York and was a very vocal critic on Twitter and, well, in the office about this whole burgeoning ordeal. For a long time, Chinese food was not that well respected in fine dining circles and was considered dirty, was considered cheap. You know, everyone has heard this whole thing about like eating rats. There were literally posters created in American history implying that Chinese, and not implying, literally saying that Chinese people ate dirty things. And so uh, it was not considered good. And that's changed a lot, which is amazing. And Andrew Zimmern, has contributed to that, has contributed to the greater appreciation of the diversity and simple deliciousness of Chinese food. And I don't think that can be denied. But this overall movement of the food world um, seeking more and more diversity and seeking more and more um, of these different flavors and quote unquote authenticity for Andrew Zimmer to come up now and say, oh, well, this is real Chinese food now. Forever, there's this constant thing throughout all of history of uh, people who look like him getting to decide what is real Chinese food. So, first of all, it was like this is gross, this is bad, and now that Chinese food is cool, it's like oh well, the other stuff was gross. That was the other stuff was bad. Without an understanding of uh, that, Chinese food does not exist in a vacuum. No food exists in a vacuum. Our understanding of food does not exist in a vacuum, and the and what people buy doesn't exist in a vacuum. All of it has uh, these different forces around it. Uh, Xenophobia is such a real thing that so much translated into how people perceive Chinese food in particular. Um, And it's like he completely forgot that. He, you know, he wasn't born yesterday. I don't think Andrew Zimmern is an idiot. And so for that interview to come out, made him seem like an idiot. I'm like, are you kidding me? You should, Mm -hmm. you know better than this. You should know better than this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it was so surprising is that his work up until this point, while it's had its troubles, like clearly the title Bizarre Foods is like not great. He's proven himself fairly capable of like smartly navigating Mm -hmm. these topics. But I think to me, when I watched the interview, I just couldn't help but wonder if it was going to get in the way of him making his dollar to be more sensitive, to think about it and to, like, try it a different way. He had this business idea. He saw a market for P.F. Chang's but better and didn't want to think about what it meant, what it meant to do that broadly. Yeah. I mean, the interview was really bad. What he said was really bad. But the restaurant itself... um, uh, sensitivity was not a priority, and looking at history did not seem to be a priority. I mean, even without those comments, just looking at what he was choosing for his decor and the whole concept, and who he's choosing to partner up with, uh, were there people involved, and not just involved consulting, but have a stake, have financial stake? Whose skin was in this game? And just from the people he chose to partner up with, it seemed like he didn't have an eye toward history and what it meant for a person who looks like him to be uh, doing a restaurant like this. There's a line of pushback that I got after I published my piece about like, well, I'm not Italian. Can I cook Italian food? Which is basically similar to the quote Zimmern gave me when I reached out to clarify his Philip Chang comments. And I think it's worth us talking about like, we are not saying you can't cook a certain thing based on what you look like. 
to me, like, I feel like the question that we're, like, talking around is, like, who gets to make money off of the cuisines of, quote, unquote, other people? And it somehow always ends up that it's people who look like Andrew Zimmern get to make the money. And to me, that's more relevant than, like, he's white and he can't cook Chinese food. That's, I feel like, a red herring that a lot of the, like, Andrew Zimmern defenders online seem to miss is that no one's saying he can't cook what he wants to cook. Yeah, he should be able to cook what he wants to cook. I If he wants to, if he thinks that he is the one who's able to bring Sichuan food to the Midwest or whatever, if he, like, think that's an actual thing, there's a way to do it with respect. And that didn't happen here. If he feels like he can be the one to do that and he has a savvy and he obviously has the reach, right? He has this fantastic audience. And I don't love, like inherently, I'm Chinese American. I don't love the idea of someone who doesn't have my background making money off of my food as a as a fact. But that doesn't mean I'm completely against it. It's, it's not a black and white situation. It's extremely nuanced. Um the world that we live in, the fact is that Andrew Zimmern is someone who's become very popular and the system that is built in place right now promotes people like him, has continued to promote people like him. And that's just the way things are. If that's the way things are, what's the best possible step for the next move, right? So he has all this social capital. Why can't he bring people who have historically not been promoted up with him? And the fact that he didn't partner with someone Chinese says so much to me. Yeah, he, he, I he think had a choice. He had a choice. And I think there's an interesting contrast with like what was potentially going to happen with Bourdain Market. I think it's really interesting to like compare the two because they're sort of similar. Like they're both these white male food celebrities who really became famous for traveling the world and showing American and presumably like I think both viewers for those shows were like presumed white viewers like the food of other people. And when Bourdain was going to do Bourdain Market, which would have been sort of a food hall project in New York, like his strategy was to bring vendors from around the world into this space. So like, yeah, Bourdain would have made a lot of money, but like so would the people cooking. And it wouldn't have been Bourdain cooking their food or, you know, Bourdain's team cooking their food. It would be getting to represent yourself to the Mm -hmm. New York City market. And that strikes me as a, a big difference than right. Here's yeah. Andrew Zimmer's then take here's, on every single different region of China. And yeah, the food yeah. Packaged up with a bow and a t-shirt and a, and t-shirt, a t-shirt that, that says, says "Get lucky, get lucky." Yeah. So Hillary, who uh, who was he actually partnering with for this project? So his partner in Lucky Cricket is Michael McDermott and the McDermott Restaurant Group. Um, Michael McDermott founded and sold um, an Arizona-based multi-unit restaurant chain called Kona Grill, which serves sushi and steaks and is named for part of Hawaii. And uh, the McDermott Restaurant Group also owns Rojo Mexican Grill, which is a Minnesota-based Mexican restaurant with, I think, two locations. So certainly not burgers and fries. (laughs) Not burgers and fries and, like, yeah, like restaurants that – maybe seem like a little culturally insensitive. Yeah, this is a man who's at the outset, seems like he's gotten rich out of marketing uh, traditionally non-American foods to Mm -hmm. white swaths of people. 
I don't think it's the biggest, but it's one of the, one of the biggest issues with this is that Andrew Zimmern wants to make this a chain. He wants to make it huge. It's not just, oh, I really love Chinese food and this one neighborhood. I, I think that all would almost be different too if he saw one specific neighborhood in his town and this one specific neighborhood didn't have any Chinese food and he was going to bring this Chinese restaurant to that place. But no, he wants to do it across the entire country. Uh, in New York, in Bushwick, there's this guy um, who runs a really great restaurant called Faro, who's an Italian restaurant. And for his second restaurant in the neighborhood, um, he decided to do a Citroen restaurant. And he is not Chinese. But his whole thing was that he's in Bushwick and there are no Chinese restaurants in Bushwick. And there are, in fact, very, very few. I lived there for quite a while and there was nothing. There's really not that much Chinese food and especially not one, a Citroen restaurant. Uh, a lot of you know, divey Chinese-American places, which totally have their place and are good, but it's not quite what you find in Manhattan or even in other neighborhoods of Brooklyn. And so he just wanted to open this one restaurant. And from what I hear, it's a really good restaurant. And that, to me, felt very different. Like, I am living this neighborhood. I really love Sutran food. I have been studying it, and I want to open a Sutran restaurant here because there was nothing here. Versus... I love Chinese food of all regions, and I am going to push it out to Mm -hmm. every single corner of the United States. Yeah. I think the idea of building a mega chain, merch merch and all, and making a ton of money off of it is what— Well, also, let's go back to, like, the Get Lucky shirt. So if people don't understand why that's offensive, media portrayals of Chinese women has, in the past, very much been that Chinese women are prostitutes. Historically, were there Chinese female prostitutes in the United States? Yes. Did it become a huge negative stereotype over the years? Yes. So why the hell, if he has so much respect for Chinese people, is he bringing up this negative stereotype and commodifying it? What is he? What was his goal? I mean, sorry if I sound naive, but what was his goal with the Get Lucky shirt? Is it, is it a it gambling funny. thing? No, I think it was like funny. It's like a pun on Lucky Cricket. Oh yeah, fuck! I didn't even realize. Yeah, I yeah. think it, I think the it's. Word I think he thought it was lucky. funny. And in the Fast Company, um, like interview, it's. I think it's like the kicker of the interview is like they were like talking about the complexities of the restaurant, and then he's like at the end, he's like, and we have shirts that say "Get Lucky" in Chinese. This is so crazy to me. I mean, you're right; it could be a gambling thing because it's like a sex thing, also. I mean, there are so many different ways to interpret that. And to me, the first thing I thought was like, "Oh, what are you trying to say, man?" Are you calling me a prostitute? I don't, I don't know. That's <laughs> well, precisely where my head went. No, like a thing that really sort of stuck out at me is like when I looked at the, we ran like the opening photos on Eater Twin Cities and like the Lucky Cricket logo is like written in Lucky Peach font. It's just a grab bag borrowing of different ideas. Culinarily speaking, there's fusion on the menu. There's hand-torn noodles he's saying are Jian style. There's Shenzhen Bao. Like there's real food and fusion food. And then there's like Lucky Peach font and tiki and posters that say Hawaii. It's just a mishmash. Mm -hmm. And I think that lack of specificity, it has a flattening effect. And because of his role, both like in our, in food culture as having been a quote unquote translator of other cultures, he's presenting a flattened, elided vision of Chinese culture and then telling his audience that because of his wealth of knowledge, what they are getting is real. And that's very tricky to me. And he's contributing to the further like sophistication of American palates. 
Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Yeah, in theory, his I I like his idea. I like the idea. That's, of I think more, that's important more point. Yeah, yeah, more and more people understanding regionalities of Chinese food is awesome. I mean, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, the suburbs of the South, and there wasn't Chinese food. I didn't know about different regions of Chinese food till I came to New York. Mm-hmm. Like, it is just not known across the United States. So, yeah, I love that mission. Great mission. But even then, when you look at the menu, I would have believed that his mission was, in fact, a good-natured educational one if the menu had been organized by region rather than like a hodgepodge. If you actually want to teach people, then you can make an informative menu. It's just baffling to me that it's 2018 and in the world that we live in that you don't find people to help you out. Like he is so well resourced. He could have asked anybody could have asked for you. help. He could have asked me. You know, I if you wanted to pay me to take a look at the menu, I, sure. I don't know if I personally could have done it because of my eater job, but there I could have referred him to people. He could have paid people to like make sure this wasn't a shit show, and he could have earned our respect. But even just someone to walk through and just be like, "This is going to be an issue, buddy." I think he thinks he knows best. That's like the attitude that came off from it, and that's the that's the tricky part. Is like the inability to know when you don't know best is the whole problem. Yeah, and for. People who have, uh, particularly Chinese Americans, who have so so much of any pain we've experienced is based on very specific language that we are watching out for language because it's been repeated to us over and over and over again. And even in his apology, he framed it within, um, he, he centered whiteness in it once again. Uh, he had some line in there that... Yeah, what he said is, I have made a career of making invisible communities, cultures, tribes, and businesses visible. And then the question is audience, right? This is the thing I think about a lot is when we're writing, who are we thinking of as the audience? And his audience in that's like invisible. Who's it invisible to? It's not invisible to me. Like, it's invisible to whiteness. So yeah. then it doesn't exist. It should have been very easy for him to do this right. After the break, we're talking to chef, writer, and soon-to-be critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, Soleil Ho. Soleil has actually eaten at Lucky Cricket. This episode is brought to you by Sonos. The holidays are just a couple weeks away, but there's no need to stress. Sonos has you covered with speakers for everyone on your list. Give the gift of brilliant, room-filling sound with Sonos One, a compact yet powerful smart speaker. Or treat someone who's been extra nice this year to the new Sonos Beam, a smart soundbar for TV, music, and more. Sonos works with over 100 streaming services, so you don't have to know which one your friends and family prefer. Plus, Sonos One and Beam have Amazon Alexa built in for easy voice control. Right now, you can save $20 on a single Sonos One and $50 on a pair of Sonos Ones. Keep one and gift the other, or stock up and treat all your family and friends to the gift of amazing sound. Offer valid through December 25th or while supplies last. Go to Sonos.com for more details. Sonos. Listen better. Up next, we're talking to writer Soleil Ho. 
a Minneapolis-based food writer who will soon be moving to San Francisco to be the critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. (laughs) Yay. We sent Soleil to go eat at Lucky Cricket, and she wrote her thoughts about the experience on Eater.com. Soleil Ho, thank you so much for for calling in. Oh, thank you for having me. Or I guess miking in because you have your own podcast, The Racist Sandwich, so you have all the gear at home, making it a lot easier for us. <laughs> yeah, at the very least, I can give you some good audio. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, right. <laughs> Do you want to just give us your like your initial read on the situation when when it started popping up on on Twitter and however it came to you. Yeah. Um so it was pretty funny, right? Because Hillary quoted me um from a 5-year-old essay that I wrote for Bitch called Craving the Other in her initial piece about it, um about Andrew Zimmern's remarks. And so I was tagged in a lot of stuff and I didn't even I hadn't even read it yet really. So I was like, "Wait, what is this?" <laughs> <laughs> um I had no idea. And so I was alerted to the controversy kind of sideways. And then I read about it and I was like, oh, wow, like Asian Twitter is like super excited about this. Dang. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that was my my exposure. Like a bunch of people sent it to me because they were like, oh, hey, you were quoted in this. Um, And I'm glad that the essay is still relevant. And, you know, after that, I got called by other news outlets just to provide a quote and just talk about it and just articulate sort of you know, what my feelings about it were as someone who's vocally Asian. (laughs) (laughs) I was already just planning to go just out of curiosity because, you know, it's so rare that being someone who lives in Minneapolis, um, it's so rare that national food media pays attention, you know, Um, Hmm. especially when things like this happen, because I don't you know, I think it was a perfect storm of like controversy and celebrity and just politics. And, you know, for a lot of people, it was really meaty. It was really interesting. And, you know, this is a, a restaurant that's opening up in this mall that I go to sometimes to watch movies in the suburbs of Minneapolis. So I was like, oh, yeah, like I'm definitely going. Oh, no way. I, I didn't realize that. So it, it's it's kind of funny to me as someone that goes to a lot of movies on my own in malls um, that like this is a place you would have passed anyway. Yeah. So, like, clearly it's something you're going to be interested in. But what was it like when you first walked in? Yeah, when I first walked in, it was really, it's sort of like an onslaught when you walk in and, like, Steve Miller Band is playing and there's, you know, uh, like a palm-woven roof over the bar and there's just, like, a lot. And actually what I didn't mention is as soon as you walk in, there's this, like, bamboo cage on the left with, like, armchairs and, like, a lots of pillows and it's really cute and like that was really weird I was like what is this and people were posing in the cage and like taking pictures and then like immediately to the right there was like the merch window and it's just like a lot you know it was this very packaged overstimulating (laughs) experience and I was like there's so much here that I want to write about because you know all of these things add up to this picture of a place that Mm -hmm is trying really hard to be a lot of things. And for me, that's really interesting. One of the things that jumped out at me when, you know, I was reading your draft and in the final piece is like the visual touch points of like various parts of various Asian cultures in a restaurant that has, you know, that was explicitly intended to like, quote unquote, teach the Midwest about Chinese cuisine. About specifically Chinese food, yeah. Yeah, Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about like what some of those different markers were and like the ways in which that is maybe like a jumbled message? (laughs) Yeah. For me, especially because like the bar is very tiki, right? That, you know, from the get go, that was the goal is to have a tiki bar and to resurrect like the Trader Vic's sort of aesthetic. And, you know, 
tiki in itself as a genre is very much about rolling up a ton of different cultures in Polynesia, the Pacific, the Philippines, um, you know, Thailand, <laughs> Indonesia, all into this kind of mishmash, which is really interesting. It creates a really interesting cultural product, but there's a level of irony to it and falseness to it that I think, you know, earned Tiki a lot of fans. Like, they like kitsch, and that's totally cool. I mean, it's interesting, right? Um, and, you know, to pair that with an attempt at authenticity, and, you know, authenticity is really loaded, but I think it's appropriate here because that was the goal, was to import, you know, Zimmern's foods that he really enjoyed in his travels to the Midwest and, you know, teach people, okay, this is real roast duck, this or Peking duck or whatever. This is real Shenjiang bao. This is real dandan noodles, right? And so together they make really weird bedfellows. And I really was fascinated by that conflict because tiki is very mired, like I said, in irony. Mm -hmm. And yet to be paired with something that is so earnest and trying to be, you know, real in the culinary sense, the cultural sense was so interesting. It's also really, it's it's clearly something that's proven to be successful. So I think if we keep thinking about this as just a business, it's funny that like within a couple weeks, there was already merch, like the merch was rolled out. And something that has been proven in outside markets like Tiki or in big cities was there like from, from the get-go. Like it's, it's just like, it's hard to not think about him just going through and thinking about all the things that are doing well elsewhere and creating some big kind of problematic stew. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one thing that I thought, too, was that this seems very much a nostalgia project, right? Um, nostalgia for maybe foods that he's had and, you know, learned to love in his travels, but also nostalgia for this very old Hollywood way of understanding and, you know, signifying the Pacific and the East. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very much like old fashioned in a lot of ways. And so I and I thought Tiki already had a revival, too. I thought that happened. So we're kind of right. I no guess, one needs to learn trying about to force tiki. a third revival. I, I feel like the one thing that ties like Tiki culture and the sort of old Hollywood aesthetic to like the central problem that we've like are identifying and wrestling with with Lucky Cricket is that like it's both are fundamentally like founded upon a white gaze. And I think that's the connective thread between like the mish the cultural mm -hmm. mishmash of the decor, the throwbackness of like fun times tiki. Right. And then right. paired that with like, let me tell you what makes a real Dandan noodle. Like it's both yeah. centered upon this one right, white right, gaze. Because right. it would be different in a way if he just said, he, I've traveled a lot. Here are all the things that I find super fun. And here is me just bastardizing all of them. Yeah, like, it would have been totally different. Right. I think Trader Vic's, you know, their menu is really expansive. And it also does that sort of, you know, polycultural thing with their food items. There's Thai food, Chinese food, um, you know, Filipino food on their menu. And, you know, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. for a tiki bar and like for an iconic tiki bar like they they don't pretend and i think in the case of lucky cricket i think it's it's strange to introduce that like authentic angle the real angle when like like you said going with the former angle like it's a little bit ironic it's just a little bit of an interpretation you know i think that makes more sense mm -hmm. and how was how was the food <laughs> 
it was really difficult. I don't walk into places hoping that they're bad, you know, never, never, never. And, you know, it just was, it was bad. And, you know, there are a few dishes that were great. Um, I wouldn't say great, but like they comparatively, they were like delightful. Um, You know, the vegetable sides generally were pretty good. But it was just the standbys that, you know, that were ostensibly supposed to be better than the mall Chinese that I grew up eating. Um, Yeah, that was disappointing. I think one thing I found really compelling in your essay um, that as someone who has not yet been to the restaurant helped me understand your experience was like it wasn't just that like it was bad. It was like the building blocks were bad. Like noodles mm-hmm. were were not properly cooked. Rice was under seasoned, like fundamental core. It's one of those things where I always think about auditioning line cooks for a restaurant, right? And you often ask, well, a few chefs famously ask if they can cook an egg and you right. try to get them to make like <laughs> a um, like an over easy egg. And if they can get that right, then you can trust them with a lot of other things. So it's like, in the in the culinary world, you you hope to God that like you can do the fundamentals because that's right. what everyone's judging you on, right? And then you can boast as much as you want about yeah. other stuff and talk about molecular gastronomy and like yada yada yada. But if you can't cook an egg, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I feel it's so funny because you also I, I think you said that uh, even something like this like Sichuan peppercorns they weren't like they weren't explosive. I think it's almost like I hadn't thought about this before now, but it's like it's become cliche for people to be like, I want to introduce people to Sichuan peppercorns, <laughs> like at least in our small bubble. Like, yeah, like people don't get it. I want to explain. I want to I want to shepherd them in. But even to, to go soft on that, like what is the point of this whole thing? It, he's it, it seems like it's just to write them on the menu. Well, what's hard for me is that I do that all the time, right? I always love bringing people to new restaurants that they've never been to, new cuisines. And, you know, I've done it so many times. And, you know, I wouldn't do that by taking them to a Panda Express. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And I, I wouldn't hold back those punches because I think that's the experience that people deserve. At least try the new thing and you know, understand like this is how it's supposed to be. And like this is it at its most unashamed, at its most naked, you know, at its most um, exciting and new. And they just, you know, I think there's a lot of fear there. At least I, you know, that's me doing some like supposition, but it does feel more conservative than what I thought. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me about both his comments and based on what you ate is it's just a really... It's not expecting a lot from his customer base. And that's kind of sad. Mm -hmm. I also sort of think like the geographic like markers on the menu where he's like, oh, like Hantorn Jian style noodles or Sichuan peppercorn. It's like throwing out these words and using them as like a cloak almost of like, no, no, no. See, I am taking it seriously, but not Mm -hmm. actually. Right, right, right. Somehow that seriousness isn't translating to the work itself. He's just doing the labels. It's like just the labels. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, this is speculating, but I wonder if... It's fine. That's the podcast. That's the purpose of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm curious if the original recipes were just focus groups to death. Like, I don't know. Um, Right. And that might be what happened. Um, That's how it feels. How did it feel to be in there and like how did it wrap up? Gosh, I mean it felt really poignant in in a way 
just to be, I, and this has happened a lot in my life, you know, covering food, but just to be in a place that is being talked about so extensively. And I think that that's an integral part of the piece that I wrote as well. It's just right. like, what is it like to be somewhere that is the talk of the town, but for the wrong reasons? Um, and, you know, it, it was... I wasn't looking for things to be bad, like I said, but you notice things more. You know, be, I was surprised. I was surprised by Kung Food Room. I was like, really? Wow. And I was surprised by the, you know, the Chinese phrase in the back of the T-shirts, like which is a very like machine translated phrase that is supposed to mean get lucky, but it's just not something that a native speaker would say. And, you know, there were just things there. Luckily, <laughs> they... Uh, reprinted the dessert menu, which originally said desert in Chinese instead of dessert, you know, so that was a saving grace. <laughs> yeah, good thing <laughs> and, got you know, I think that tells me that they weren't expecting anyone to really look, you know, um, or at least to really understand what was going on behind all of those sort of artifice. Can you tell me a little bit about the reactions you've gotten online um, when you started speaking out about what Zimmern had said and now that you have this piece up? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I was pretty reasonable. I don't, you know, I, I think that people project a lot more meanness and malice um, in what I say than what I actually say. Like I spend a lot of time trying not to be, like I obsess over it. I'm so anxious over um, not being unfair, right? And at the same time, like the reactions I get from all sides are very much just very dramatic. And one of the reactions I got from a quote that, you know, I must, you know, I don't know what they read, but I got a phone call from a no caller ID number on my cell phone where, you know, sometimes I just pick up because I just want to know. I'm very curious once in a while. And it was this man <laughs> who wanted to talk to me about Andrew Zimmern. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? I, like, why would you go so far? I just, I, it just wouldn't possess me. Even if I had Donald Trump's number, I wouldn't call him. I just don't think that would be a productive conversation. And I just don't even know what I would say. And so I don't know what that person wanted. And it was very surreal. It was my first time anyone's ever tried to call me over something. Yeah. So weird. What did he say? So invasive. Yeah. Um. He said, well... Well, he pronounced my name really wrong, which is, you know, it happens. <laughs> I don't know if it was on purpose. But then he he said, you know, I just wanted to say that I think Andrew Zimmern has a point or he's on point. And then I just hung up because I was like, what? Like, what? Like, <laughs> 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 I, I don't want to have this conversation with whoever you are, and especially if you go so far as to hide behind a no, like an anonymous call. Like that sounds it feels threatening. It feels dangerous. I just didn't want to continue with that. And so. I don't know. That made me even more curious to go. <laughs> Just, you know, what is the point about? Like what, you know, I don't know. Because there's so much debate over this. There's so much controversy. And I guess people are very inflamed about it for some reason um, on all mm -hmm. sides. And I just wanted to actually see it. And I was willing to be surprised. Um I was very willing to be surprised. Yeah, it's funny. On the YouTube video, I was searching. I was just looking at the comments on the original Fast Company interview. And the majority of the comments uh, defending him were just saying that, like, Panda Express does suck. Like, that, that is the angle, I think, that people were taking. <laughs> yeah, which is, like, sort of besides the I point mean, anyway. It is beside the point. Like, you know, 
I have a lot of Mexican friends who love Taco Bell because it's not Mexican food, right? Right. And Panda Express is the same thing for Chinese people or people who just like grew up eating that food. It's just like, yeah, it's it's fun. It's different. It's not our food. And, you know, there's an acknowledgement of like these people are hustling to make a living and they made Americanized food. Like we get it. It's not like something to be angry about. Um, it's just acknowledgement that we as a racial minority have to make a living here and figure that out by any means possible. Yeah, that's Thank great. you so much again um, just for your hard work on this piece. I'm really proud to have it on Eater. Also, I'm excited um, for what you do at The Chronicle. Oh, thank you. It's nice to write a few non-reviews before I just go headlong into writing reviews all the time. So this was really great. Hillary, do you think um, going through this process and like having to talk about it for nine hours, <laughs> has anything changed for you? Do you see this in a different light? Yeah, I guess the thing that changed my mind is that the food that Soleil had wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. It just signals a lack of seriousness when actually this is a really serious topic. Uh, Hillary, thank you so much for doing the show. Um, we hope that you all loved it. If you did, make sure to you know, pepper us with stars in all the stores and tell all your friends that this is the place to be for the the food conversation. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that's all we have for you this week. And we will be back next week with something else. Thanks. Pushing boundaries and empowering women along the way. The On Her Turf podcast highlights amazing women and even their male allies who are champions on and off the field and who motivate everyday people to be the best versions of themselves. Join host Katherine Tappan as she speaks with new powerhouse guests every week, from WNBA star Candace Parker to the owner of the Buffalo Bills, Kim Pegula. Learn what drives them and how you can apply lessons they've learned to your everyday life. Listen to the On Her Turf podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or, to wh- or wherever you listen to your podcasts.